Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hello and welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping. I'll be your host. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Matt Fonslow. If you're not familiar with Matt, he is a diagnostic technician and shop manager at Riverside Automotive in Red Wing, Minnesota. Matt also does some training nationally for PicoScope. If you're at Vision this weekend, you can actually catch his hands-on class. Matt's also very active in the automotive world and has a whole bunch of stuff to say. So I am very excited to have him on the show today. With that said, we're going to get right into the interview. Hello, Matt. Thank you for being here on the podcast. I appreciate you taking your time out of your evening to be with me here. Are you crazy? I'm uh, happy that you actually wanted me on the show. Well, I was really excited to talk to anybody that's uh, interested in this kind of stuff, automotive diagnostics, but also fellow Minnesotan. Um, can't <laughs> beat that. This is uh, such a awesome place to live, I think. Have, have you been, you've lived here your whole life? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was born here, lived predominantly here, moved to southwest Kansas, oh man, somewhere around, uh, gosh, I want to say 2007 maybe, somewhere okay. in there, 2006, 2007, uh, to Garden City, Kansas, and at the time that was where the soon-to-become uh, Pico USA was going to be. Uh, at the time, it was a company that was owned by the guy who is now the uh, Pico North American Channels manager uh, owned. Okay. Yep, and then he brought me on as a, kind of the automotive uh, department or a, a big piece of it. And then... Uh, I was there for, well, I think it was like three years, maybe pushing four. And I just, yeah, I really missed home. I really missed Minnesota. Uh, it's a big difference between southwest Kansas and Minnesota. So, you know, we'll be in Vision, uh, which is on the far east side, north, kind of northeast side of uh, Kansas slash uh, Missouri, into Missouri a little bit, I think. That's nothing like uh, southwest Kansas. Not that it's bad, it's just, you know, a lot flatter and drier. Most of the standing water is in swimming pools. It's, it's just different. Big, big farms, because it's flat. You know, not that Minnesota really doesn't have big farms, but I don't think quite on that scale. So I lived there for a while and uh, moved back to Minnesota, and I didn't realize just how much I missed it until I got back. Even coming back for Christmas, and we'd have a few sub- sub sub zero days you know the one year was uh, minus 40 i was sending pictures back to people in kansas that really couldn't wrap their head around that kind of cold yeah you can't uh you can't do that until you live it until you experience it <laughs> well they wonder how we do it and it's not really any different than i don't know how a floridian deals with the heat and humidity you know we get quite a bit of heat and humidity up here but i don't think it's quite on 
their scale. No, not not quite. I have some friends that live down in Florida. I don't know if I'd be able to do it in the middle of summer there, uh, working under the hood of a vehicle. <laughs> uh, brutal. It's brutal. So yeah, I, you know, you just do it. You throw on an extra layer of clothes. And oddly enough, you get used to it. And I was ex- yep. trying to explain to them how uh, it's not uncommon around here that we go through a few days, weeks of cold weather, sub-zero, sub-freezing, you know, under under freezing. And uh, drive around the elementary schools when you get a nice day that just kind of pops up. You know, if we had a few, if we had a week of sub-zero weather and you get a nice sunny day where it's two degrees out, the kids playing outside, all their coats are lined up against the school building. They're all playing <laughs> in two-degree weather with maybe their snow pants on and long sleeve shirts. Sure, Completely it's a heat Yes, yes. <laughs> Because you know, it's like a 20 degree swing. That's what it uh, felt like this weekend. Actually, we hit uh, around 50 yesterday, and we're all outside, standing around in our t-shirts and soaking up the sun. Yep. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's funny how that works. I all got sunburned. So you are down in Red Wing. Uh, it's a little ways south of the Twin Cities. I'm just a little ways north of the Twin Cities, and you are at uh, Riverside Auto. How long have you been there? I think it's going on seven years, eight years. And you are the shop manager and you do diagnostic work there as well? Yeah, probably high 90% of the diagnostics programming, uh, arguably maybe like technology type stuff. And then, um, yeah, shop management, which for the most part is just kind of coming up with uh, – Dealing with like marketing and uh, coming up with those ideas. If we have radio ads, I would write the radio ads. Uh, Facebook posts, for the most part, when I do when we do them, I'm doing them. But I need to get better about consistency. You know, we don't have a lot of SOPs like we should, but if there are, coming up with those. And I mean, yeah, from everything I hear from you and uh, everything else I've seen, you guys are killing it down there. I mean. Uh, you're bringing in work from other shops around there, aren't you? Yeah, I, you know, it really, I, I think I've said this on other uh, interviews, and then just you and I uh, talking. A lot of it just starts out honestly trying to help uh, another tech, another shop. You know, if they call up and they have a question about, hey, how would you go about this, or what do you think about that, and just, you know, very earnestly trying to give them a hand you know this is what i would do this is what scan tool i would use this is how i'd approach this problem a lot of times it ends up just at the shop and some stuff they they can't do because they don't have the uh the equipment nor do they have the uh, inclination to go seek out that equipment so it ends up uh at the shop and you know it's i mean i'm glad to have the car at the shop but the whole idea is not take work from them or anything like that it's i'm honestly just trying to help them out help them out uh, i would rather expand the market than try to just corner and dominate it that's awesome you guys have put in the time you know for the training and the investment and the tools so you're the you're the shop in that area where where people are looking 
when they need that sort of work done or they or they need help. That's really cool that you're you're willing to do that for other people that are out there because uh, I'm sure you know there's there's a lot of people that they don't quite have that same mindset. Yeah, I think it's a lot of things play into that. You know, I lucked, I really lucked out. I don't think there's any way around that. I think it's just a lot of pure, either dumb luck or genuine <laughs> luck that, uh, for one, you know, growing up on a farm did not hurt one bit. Growing up with a uh, grandfather, grandmother, uh, father, and uh, uncle involved in a farm implement dealer, and my involvement at a young age around there and then being just genuinely interested in how things work. I wanted to really know how things work kind of going through that and then high school and really not knowing what I wanted to do and not really, I'm not sure I even cared at that point, but uh, a couple of things in shop class and an instructor from the very local technical college. It was Red Wing technical college had an automotive program two years you know, an interaction with him at a high school shop class, him calling my parents and telling them what a bright future I had in auto repair and it being so close and easy to go to. If anything, I was going to fall back on this. First day, getting the tour of the shop, seeing a scan tool, which at the time was a OTC 4000E enhanced, which is, you know, now do little as a wheel chalk, if anything. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, right, it was that was mind-boggling to me to be able to sit there and plug this into a connector and look at this data that seemed really high-tech to me, really high-end, really. Uh, sure. I remember even watching racing with my dad, be it NASCAR or Indy at the time when CART kind of ruled, and the the guys in the pits looking at the data. That's what I thought was so cool, and this kind of echoed that, and then getting a job at a shop where essentially even as a teenager them saying, you know what, you want to do this diagnostic stuff, you like that, here you go. You can have it all. And letting me uh, flail and struggle and work through it and that helped. And then uh, at the time, and maybe, I don't know if you would remember this, but there was a third year program in Minnesota at Alexandria Technical College, and being able to go to that was really, I mean, that was life-changing for me to was, get it. Was that all diagnostic-based? Yeah, it was one year. The program's name was Automotive Diagnostic Technician. It was the ADT program. It was before the state really got involved in the college education system. So you had two instructors that created this program, had all the rules, there's nobody going to mess around with them, with their rules. It was run the way they wanted to. Okay. They had the support of the uh, president of the, the college. And um, the criteria was you needed to graduate from a two-year program. You needed to have your instructor call up there and talk to them and basically sell them on the idea that you had the attitude to go up there and succeed. Because they had a reputation that they took very, very seriously that when you got that diploma – you were going to be one of the better techs out of school. And they took that very seriously. Uh, and then you had to take an entrance exam, and you had to go up there. Uh, or For me, it was up, I guess, depending on where you lived. Sure. Uh, but you had to go there 
and talk to them a little bit and get a tour by one of the uh, students. And they would decide whether they felt you had what it took or not. And uh, and as, as an example, the first day of class, we had under 40. I think it was like 35. I think it was like 35 students. And after two weeks, we were down to 15. Some wow. Would, yeah, some would quit. And some of them, the instructors would just, it was two of them. They would walk over and just say, you know what? You're not keeping up. Why don't you try again next year? And they'd have to reapply. And I don't know if they would ever take them. But the first two weeks was just electrical. And the first day, the one instructor, Bob Schultz, went up in front of the room and, I don't know, maybe looked at everybody's entrance exams and picked on the quote-unquote smartest kid and made him look like a fool. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it, I mean, which sounds like mean and stuff, but honestly, I think it was just to kind of knock everybody off their little pedestals and humble everybody a little bit. And I don't know, I think, I mean, I, I suppose you could argue it didn't work because half of them quit. But for those that stayed, I think it was a big deal. And then out of the 15, I'm pretty sure we graduated five. Wow. That, you said that was a year-long program there? Yep. Okay. And how much of that would you say was hands-on? Obviously, you, gotta... you know, now I think that electrical training uh, is common at most trade schools. At the time, at least through my two-year, it was nothing like that. I think at the two-year, we had the breadboards. With uh, this, the third-year program was we worked through units on electrical that we had the um, uh, like test trainers i guess you would call them tabletop sure. trainers and we would have a power supply and it would start out very simple and uh it might be just some lights like a parking light circuit and you work through uh, a packet and uh, voltmeter only uh, if you used an ohmmeter oh my god oh my <laughs> god and um yeah you were you were punished i think if they would allowed corporal punishment they would have used it uh, you did not use your own meter you used a <laughs> bolt meter and you worked through a packet and then you'd take when you got through that packet you'd take the board up to the instructor and he would bug it and then you best not turn that board over to see what he did but you had to figure out what was wrong with it using the voltage drop and then you'd go up there and explain to him not only what was wrong but how you found it and then you'd get them progress and you'd keep assembling this test board till you had a very fairly elaborate lighting system and then you'd have uh, where you'd go over to like the computer quote-unquote computer controls where it would be kind mm -hmm. of an ECM with some potentiometers and actuators and stuff like that and that was the better part of two weeks probably going on three weeks that you worked through that and that was just electrical and we had a lab scope unit um, that kind of tied into it so fluke 97s they would not get you the 98s because they would hold your hand. So you had to use 97s, Sun LS 2000s, uh, the OTC badged Intero PDA, so it was a OTC vision scope. Um, I don't remember the, uh, it was a Mac scope, but it was really just a rebadged Tektronix scope, and I don't remember the number on it uh, or the model, but you had to work, you had to use all these scopes. You had to be able to get a pattern on the screen, use trigger, manipulate the pattern. 
nobody, I, don't, I don't remember anybody really doing that, nor having the time. I think that's the big yeah. thing. In a two-year program, do you have enough time to really do that? And I'm, I would argue you do not. You do not have the time, especially nowadays. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's, it's a struggle today. I mean, we have our NATEF, or it's now it's the ASC Education Foundation, formerly NATEF, guidelines that we have to follow. And so, you know, there's certain things that we have to include, but in the meantime, there's, you know, new things on vehicles coming out every day. So what part of the car do you take away to teach uh, something else? But uh, we've really worked to try to ingrain electrical into everything because you know, that's just the way it is. Vehicles are getting more and more and more complex. I think the the I don't want to say young people because I don't think it's young people coming into the trade anymore. Just the novice or the new people or the the new students, however you want to qu- qualify them, they do not have the background most most of us had back in the day. Even if you didn't grow up in a shop or on a farm, you just grew up in a, a kind of an era where it was far, far more common for somebody in the family to do something on a car for maintenance, repair, or even your lawnmower or your bicycle. I I mean, I just don't think a lot of people, you know, fix bikes anymore. Uh, if right. you have a mini bike or a, a, a little a mini bike or a motorcycle or anything, I don't know that dad or mom are going to be out there or grandpa even uh, servicing that and if it breaks they're calling up a shop you know we can pick on a bike or a lawnmower you know it doesn't start maybe they youtube it quick run down to the parts store grab a, a spark plug or whatever try it if that don't fix it they're calling the repair shop and the shop's going to be like oh well our labor rate is this much and it'll take mm-hmm. this long to uh, look at it, and they're going to be like, well, that's more than a brand new mower. Assuming they're buying it, I, I would assume most people do. They, With a fairly small yard, they're running down to the, a hardware store or even Walmart, and you got a brand new mower. You can't afford <laughs> to fix it. Your kids lose out on that. You know, When I was a kid, mom would fix her sewing machine. She would fix the toaster, fix the TV. She knew how to... Yeah put tubes in it so i watched all that not saying i really understood it or even now totally understand it but you could kind of reproduce that or you, at least you had this mental image when an instructor is talking to you about something you can kind of refer it to something mm-hmm. and i don't i just don't think people have that not that it's their fault it's just the way it is so now you have the same amount of time or less to try to teach people about these really complex machines they have less background, less knowledge base coming in, and you're trying to do it in either the same amount of time or less. It seemed like when I graduated my two-year, I graduated with 104 credits. Now, two-year programs, I mean, is it half that? It's 64 for uh, okay. two-year right now. So, yeah, and it's exactly like you said. We get a wide range. We still get, you know, kids from farms and rural areas that are really good, you know, mechanical aptitude, they, they have that from growing up, but then we get the opposite as well, where, you know, they, they don't know how to use the basic hand tools even. And, and we're totally willing to, to help them with that. But it's, it, it does make for a challenge when you've got this big giant complex car that you've also got to 
try to introduce them to as well. So the, the time management is, uh, is is a big big thing with us is try to try to get everything in as efficiently as possible. You know, it's kind of a vicious cycle because I think the uh, the trade the industry needs to start demanding uh, minimum three years of training, giving you guys the time to take them from the basics, which is, this is a Phillips screwdriver, this is a flat blade screwdriver, this is a Torx, this is a Hex, this is an Allen, this is metric. I don't know if we really use a whole lot of standard, but I guess you'd have to have it a little bit. And uh, learning to use hand tools for a while before they graduate to the power tools, because it seems like if they don't use hand tools at all and jump right into the power tools, that's when stuff gets broken because they don't kind of have that feel all it is is time. They need time to uh, learn this. And because of that, if the trade or the industry does start demanding it, well, now the uh, entry level is going to have to start reflecting that investment of time and money for that training uh, to come in. And they're still not going to be you know, ready to go. They're not really hitting the ground running, so to speak. No, absolutely not. Man, if we could have another year with with those students, it's uh, that that'd be amazing. Uh, how to make that happen? I'm not quite sure, but uh, that would be that would be awesome. Well, I think it would come from the, the trade, the the shop owners uh, on the advisory boards, just beating the drum. Three years, three years. What are we doing? What are we doing? We can't do it in two years anymore. Got to do it. Got to do it in three. And hopefully, if they hammer it long enough, and there's enough of them on the board demanding it, that uh, get some traction with the higher ups to add that third year and be able to spread out what what you would need and then maybe certain students can kind of test out of that first year and it would be two years to them but they grew up in a shop they kind of know the safety and the 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 quote-unquote i don't know basics is a really bad word but you know the stuff we're talking about like Mm -hmm. you know the the different wrenches and fasteners and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we actually had a chat with some of the other trades that are kind of in the same wing that we're in, in the school. And we were thinking about having a course that would kind of cover all the areas, you you know, students going into HVAC or welding or auto body we could have one course that would cover, you know, stuff like hand tools and fasteners and things that would transfer into all those areas. And so, that might be in the works and that might be the start, but like you said, just automotive service alone it could use a whole nother year just yeah. to itself, even without all the other programs involved. Well, hey, um, I saw that you are doing some training with PicoScope. Uh, now, is this what you were referring to earlier uh, about working down in Kansas? Is that the same thing? Uh, kind of. I mean, I don't quote-unquote work for pico anymore but uh, i do i guess contract training for them okay Uh, so uh the training depending on which training we're talking about uh training at vision is uh not really affiliated with pico uh, although it is a pico class we're we're going to be doing all day hands-on pico and then um the, 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 I guess the contract training portion that I've been doing is usually involved with manufacturers, car manufacturers, bringing Pico in as a 
maybe an essential tool, maybe something they're uh, equipping their field service techs or whatever uh, you know designation they're given uh, to uh, diagnose the quote-unquote problem childs. Uh, that I would be involved in that, and that's uh, my relationship with Pico right now. So you go around the country and do this? Yeah, I, it's true. I guess really kind of coast to coast and uh, sometimes up into Canada. Yeah, kind of all over the place, honestly, now that you bring it up. That's really cool. I just I seen a post on Facebook. You were flying somewhere to do something with Pico. I was like, oh, man, that's that's really cool. <laughs> I'm I'm a big scope nerd as uh, I'm sure sure you are as well. <laughs> I definitely have that reputation. <laughs> I would yeah I mean I would agree I I just think it's a necessary tool. Um, here's the other tool that I wanted to talk about today was uh, scan tools. I know you've used quite a few scan tools. Uh, you guys have a lot down there at Riverside. Do you got a scan tool that maybe stands out in in your mind as one of your favorites and it doesn't necessarily have to be the best scan tool today obviously everything gets outdated but something that you used that man you wish you could have that interface with every single vehicle you wish you could still have that tool or maybe it maybe it is a current one yeah wow oh man i think there's certain aspects of certain tools i like you know what i mean i would say like currently, depending depending on the car line, I would say currently I probably grab an Autel first. If anything, to just do the code scan. I, just, I like that. I think they talk to you know the vast majority of uh, modules on the car, and I kind of like the the printouts. Pretty simple, and also just some uniformity. Like if we're gonna present. Uh, vehicle reports or um, health checks or whatever that they're they're kind of standardized a little bit if only for the service advisor also the clients uh, stuff like that when it comes to the the diagnostic portion uh, specifically like drivability probably grabbing a snap-on because the graphing is vastly superior and then then depending on what's going on, what I need, the factory tools probably coming out. But I, I wouldn't. And again, it depends on the situation. You know, if I if I have a Ford with a misfire, I, nobody's. I'm not beating around the bush. IDS. And I think sometimes outside of uh, drivability, that's where the aftermarket tools start uh, suffering a little bit. And then that's where the factory tools start shining. And then, I guess, of course, on a, a lot of newer vehicles and probably more heavily Euro, that's also where our service information is. So factory tools getting used, if anything, to get some service information. Yeah, more and more, I'm sure everybody's seeing that, that, that having that factory tool sure does make the difference. I know of a few of them that I really like individual features like for instance the network topology setup yep. on the Y-Tech yep. um, that has to be one of my favorites the way they have that structured where you see all the modules that were an option the ones that are equipped the ones that have codes the ones that have a flash the ones that aren't communicating and it's all 
you know, live. It's real time. So if you got something going in and out, it will flash red and then it'll flash yellow. That sort of thing I wish was on every tool. I think that's really I, cool. For the life of me, will never understand why they don't all do that. I mean, some of them do it a little bit to a, a to a degree. I guess typically on the, the Euro side, they do that a little bit, but not not to the degree uh, as Ytech 2 and how just it's how nicely done it is it's just it's so fast so simple so intuitive yeah uh, i it's mind-boggling to me that everybody doesn't follow suit with that the um the other thing i like about the y tech is if you go into the data stream of any particular module that's on a obviously on a can vehicle but it shows you all the inputs but it actually lists if it's a bust input or not <laughs> yeah which yep. oh man I, I wish you know so many years of not using that tool i wish i would have had something like that just to see like is this sensor actually connected to this module or is it coming from another module and that those little things that you find in the, the factory tools are just so so helpful yeah they had i mean even back with drb3 they had some interesting tests you know the ccd test for the um the data bus for voltages or um, and, and then you could use the DRB3 to actually apply uh, voltage on uh, that on okay. that data bus. Um, yeah, you know, it was a pretty capable tool. It didn't really graph uh, it itself. Uh, you could, there was some stuff out there that would kind of help you graph with it. That was probably the weak spot as it did not graph. Uh, tech 2, I have fond memories of that. Sure. It just, you know, it, it didn't graph too well, but you could uh, export uh, captures, and then it would graph pretty darn good, really. You know, it was just added steps to do it. And I'll tell you, the thing I love about Tech 2, because we have some at the school, because they're still good till 13 on GMs, and there's plenty of those out there. We pull the tech two out for the students if the, if that's what they're working on, and a lot of the younger students they don't like it because it's corded to the OBD two port and it's not a touch screen. But honestly, I still think the tech two is faster than an Autel tablet as far as getting through everything because as fast as you can click, it'll go through all of the processes. There's no buffer time, and I almost wish that was a feature on some. <laughs> some newer tools where you're sitting there waiting for the wheel to spin. Yep. No, I, I agree. And uh, you know what? Even you still find yourself needing that, that like factory level, even on the older cars. Uh, I had a freaking Corvette 90, eh, 93 or 94 with an AC issue. Snap on Autel would not give me the AC switch status. Okay. But a Tech One or a Master Tech with the, um, you know, the GM Master or the Master cartridge had the GM stuff on there, but that had it on there. How sick is that? That's awesome. Ninety four. <laughs> you you know you're kind of wondering what what is the module thinking? I mean, I suppose yeah. you could start ripping and tearing and trying to back probe, but wow, you know, just plug the plug the plug the scan tool in now you kind of know it's like okay it's getting the request next up i'm going in this direction instead of uh looking at spending a fair amount of time trying to access something 
to find out which way to go next. Well, going back to what you were saying when you when you first got into this and you first saw when you, a scan tool for the first time on a vehicle and how cool that was just to be able to get all this data in the palm of your hands. And uh, I don't know, maybe people take that for granted nowadays, but I still think that oh, is so yeah. cool that we can do that through a couple wires and see I, the entirety of the vehicle. You know they take it for granted because – uh, a lot of people do not want, a lot of techs do not want to touch pre-OBD2 vehicles. I mean, if they come in with a misfire, <laughs> yeah. pre-OBD2 misfire, it's like they've forgotten how they used to find these things. And I, I mean, arguably, a lot of them, they maybe had a big box analyzer back in the day that they would have hooked up and been able to parade or raster out ignition, and now they don't have anything like that. Or if they do, they don't know it does it that uh to try to figure out which cylinders causing the misfire or the, the old style power balance where you would either uh stick a piece of uh vac or yeah vacuum line between the spark plug and the <laughs> sure. plug wire or up on the distributor cap and use a, a test slate or something to short one out at a time to kind of do a power balance uh that stuff's kind of forgotten the scan tool doesn't have you given you current misfires now you're a little lost now what do i do yeah i think we really do take for granted how much data we get you know in some cases car certain issues are so 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 much easier to figure out what the amount of data we get and how we get it and then that leaves some stuff that's just brutal absolutely (laughs) brutal like parasitic drains are brutal nowadays just brutal they got to come out with a scan tool function for that (laughs) see where the current's going (laughs) Yeah, that, and then, uh, I don't know, I can't believe, like, SAE or somebody doesn't get the manufacturers to all agree as a way a technician can force a car to go to sleep right away, like, within a minute or two. That would be uh, fantastic. You know, tech two, <laughs> yeah, you know, GM Tech 2 is, you, you could uh, put the bus to sleep, right? Mm-hmm. But then you had to, you know, work around the, uh, the Tech 2's drain, if you will, or... Uh, you had to power it up externally, but I mean, wouldn't it be great to have a, just a sequence of events with, I don't know, brake brake pedal and the ignition switch and whatever that would kind of universally put every every car, the network to sleep. That would be awesome. <laughs> God, instead of some of this waiting, I mean, you know, a lot of cars when they're right, they do go to sleep pretty darn fast, but there's others. It it just takes a long time, and you're left with all this. All these ways trying to keep the bus asleep while you're trying to track down this parasitic drain, and then if it's something where the keeping a module awake, holy cow! Yeah, some of those I, I know I, I dealt with some Chryslers where the the bus was getting woke up by one thing or another, and yeah, that's those are those are tricky ones for sure. So what do you think about scan tool that has to be connected to the internet? I mean, nowadays it's probably not as big of a deal. Um, I know the first few times that I was like, oh, this is kind of a bummer that I have to be linked up to the Internet. What are your feelings on that? Well, I, I think it's every single one of them will be that way, at least initially to get connected, right? I mean, and we're, yeah. we're picking on the secure gateway with Chrysler again, but I think everybody's going to follow suit. And um, you're going to have to somehow be connected to gain access. And then after that, at least then you can view data and DTCs, but 
I think inevitably they're all going to be that way anyways because that's where you know the manufacturers are kind of looking at what you're doing and then that's how where your service information is going to be so you're 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 hooked up you're going to pull codes and it's probably going to the internet the cloud if you will sure get that service information what does that code mean uh and then uh, any kind of service information for troubleshooting you know whether it's a trouble tree or just description operation that that's all on the cloud it's not going to be on the tool itself and then programming you know I, I think for those that aren't programming i don't i don't know how you get by because we fix a lot of cars with firmware yeah, and there's a lot of components we replace that require firmware. Uh, I I don't know I don't know how how the other shops are uh, getting by. I mean I know some of them send you know locally will have me come in or we'll send it over to get programmed. But I think there's a lot of stuff that a new part gets bolted on and the symptom goes away, but the, the car is not quote unquote fixed because you know you can have changes running changes from uh you know maybe this part was built by one manufacturer for a while but they switched vendors and now they switched to this well when you bolt that on you have to change the firmware a little bit red wings about 16,000 people you know definitely under 20,000 and we do i mean I'm programming something every day or more yeah it's uh it's so tough or it's it's getting harder every day for just you know your general average shop that maybe doesn't have anything beyond a Snap-on or an Autel, um, you know, just the scan tool. They're limited on more and more things every day, and, and you see it, and I've seen it out there uh, getting calls on this stuff. So, I mean. Yeah, everybody's got to switch to it eventually. Everybody, if they want to be in in the business, if they want to keep making money, they're going to have to get on some level um, of, of programming, some access to it. That, and I think uh, we're probably going to see just more and more. Um, maybe specialization is probably not the right word for it, um, but narrowing down the number of car lines you fully service and then tooling up for those car lines you know i don't i don't know if some of the subscription based stuff they send you a piece of equipment and then they lease it to you and you can uh, do some programming where they essentially log in and do a lot of the button pushing for you you're gonna have to have somebody there cycling keys or doing something is that like I the Drew Check, the RAP program? The RAP, or I think uh, there's, what, AirPro, Aztec. Honestly, I suppose you could argue Drive Pro, even though that's uh, kind of a full-fledged scan tool where you can have somebody essentially take over and do the, uh, the I, guess, I guess, the button pushing, if you will. Like a team then, viewer hey, type deal. Yeah, hey, can you uh, cycle the key? Can you run? Open the door, hit the brakes, shift okay. it in the drive, do this, uh, while they're kind of helming the scan tool. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that's gonna take or not. I, I can see some of the appeal, but man, and do you want to be, and not like running these companies down? They definitely got their part, 
but you know as as a a shop or a, a business as a tech do you want to become more reliant on external support me and you absolutely not i i know my opinion on that but yeah i guess it depends on depends on the shop depends on the guy i i, I don't feel like that's a good uh, business strategy though yeah, i just see long-term repercussions uh it's it's kind of like you know not to keep not to steer anything any which way but i just i just find it kind of along the same lines as uh database diagnostics where you know the payoff seems really big but i think the long term cost is extremely high definitely well unless you got any other uh thoughts about scan tools um i thought we'd move on to any recommendations that you might have whether it be tool or training or any other resource for any techs that are listening wow um I, I think it's the path everybody takes. You're just going to get it in a different manner. So when I was coming up, there wasn't, I mean, the internet was definitely around, um, but it isn't nearly what it is now. I, I think you just try to get as much information as you can, and it's hard to vet what's good and what's bad. Kind of, I guess, in the back of your mind, question everything until you find sources that are very reliable. And those sources might be online. It might, you know, it might be on YouTube. It might be uh, on forums. It might be, uh, you know, chat rooms or whatnot like that with other uh, techs or instructors or whatever it may be. And then instructor-led training. You know, you and I are very, very spoiled that every other month we get Thornton up here. Yeah, you're not kidding. Yeah, I. We're so spoiled to have that and that you can hang your hat on. This is good information and you can kind of use that as a barometer. And the more time you spend with him, hopefully the better you are at vetting other information or, you know, at least maybe in being in a better position to prove it right or wrong. And I, I think you just have to try to, Try to get it from as many different places as you can. And then I, I suppose I should have probably said this right away. This probably should have been the very first thing was start networking. How, however that may be, whether it's attending a training conference, you know, Vision's right around the corner. Go into Vision. Uh, after class, for Christ's sakes, don't just head up to your room and call it a night. Hang out down in the hotel lobby. Meet people. Meet techs hang out at the tra- uh, trade show, meet people, meet techs, meet shop owners, meet managers, meet vendors, hopefully make friends, and uh, that will start a group of people who strive to learn more and more and kind of help each other out and um, raise your raise standards and raise your skill level with it, grow together. I think that's big. Uh, and then social media, I mean, that's become a freaking resource. Nobody, I don't know anybody would dare predict the resource that social media has become. Facebook, Facebook groups, Facebook pages. It's a freaking yeah, resource. And it's, you know, there's some, you got to watch it like anything. 
like like any kind of a enthusiast forum too you know you got to be careful there can be some good information but there's a lot of a lot of texts on a lot of facebook groups or facebook pages that are very very bright thirsty thirsty to learn more where they present an idea and you challenge it and it doesn't have to be a big peeing match and you, you both leave wiser yeah, you're talking to the to the right people out there. There's some really helpful guys and gals out there in Facebook and whatever social media. And I, I got to say, it, it's been really eye-opening for me as far as information. And, I mean, that's how I found out about stuff like Vision was through social media. So I couldn't agree more. It's a huge resource as long as you can sift through a little bit of BS. Yeah, and it, like you, like I said a little earlier, you might not be able to at first, and that's fine. That's just kind of the way it is. You're gonna, we're all just trying to figure it out. That's that's all I'm trying to do is figure it out. I I want to know what's right, and I don't know what's always right, and so I I try to listen to it all. I try to read it all. I try to put it into practice, or you know, prove it or disprove it, and not even to really you know i i would say normally i'm critical of everything you know i i would say my knee-jerk reaction to most people's stuff is i'm not sure that's right and then i go try to prove it and just get better that way just like a car right we're always we're trying to figure out what's not right or what's right i mean sometimes that gets forgotten too in our tests <laughs> right <laughs> we're, we're upset we tested something and it tested good well i mean that isn't fundamentally a bad thing you now know what it isn't exactly yeah Pro- proven out the uh, the bad parts or the failed system and then resources you uh as you progress I don't, you know sae has um magazines and they have books available it's more to the engineering level and that can be really, really dangerous. I used to be on a pretty hardcore kick of reading SAE documents, reading SAE books, and uh, just really combing through um, patents, trying to learn how stuff really, really works. And I am really, really, I don't know, I'm, I am not really sure how helpful that was. I mean... Maybe in conversations you can sound pretty smart, but with the broken car sitting in your bay, I think I've been sent down rabbit holes because of ideas I've developed because of reading these things. Like, oh, well, this is what I think they're really trying to do, and then you just, you're overcomplicating it. And Okay, uh, getting down to the engineering level. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sometimes sounds cool to be able to sit there and say, well, no, this is kind of what they're doing. Yay. Uh, I don't know if that helps you fix the car, honestly. Okay. And not to deter anyone from seeking more information, but just try to try to temper it a little bit. But it can be an overwhelming amount of information out there, just overwhelming. Uh, and then part of our jobs is not just considering what all the possibilities are, but we have to be probably better at ruling out what it can't be. A lot of times when you're, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've witnessed this where you're helping somebody out, whether it's a student or another tech and they're chasing something that you would have 
eliminated as a possibility immediately because it just it doesn't work that way. Uh, but they're convinced that this piece of data, or trying to relate maybe car lines or other systems to make this uh, sure. something something of a focus, and now they're they're stuck in this rut. And it's a lot of times we have to be able to look at data and be able to uh, ignore it. This is this doesn't. I'll, I'll back burner this. Like I'm not taking it off the table because I don't want to say anything's possible, but maybe there's a chance this could be it. But I'm going to back burner this. I'm going to move on. I'm going to look for something else. But I can always come back to this. I don't know if that happens enough. I think you get uh, locked in and tunnel vision, and now you're now you're in for it. Oh, I've definitely been there myself where I have one piece of uh, data or one scope capture or something, and I'm I'm determined, well, this must be the problem. This must be what we're dealing with. And uh, after extensive testing, you realize, oh, okay, I guess that's normal. Yeah. <laughs> that might be a problem here. with, yeah, that might be a problem with scopes or some of the scope training out there is that you go to these classes and you have the instructor whether they're just the uh, presenter or the, the person that wrote it and uses it, you know, sometimes they're just these little um, anomalies and they're like, sure. see, that's what's going on here. I saw this and I went this way. And I don't know about you, but most of the time, if I have a scope on something, it's usually not subtle. It's usually a big jumps out at you. Don't get yeah, me yeah. wrong. There, there's times where it's there's little things going on. Maybe uh, quote unquote uh, pinnacle bumps would some people would be considered subtle. Um, but man, most of the time it's it jumps out at you. This is not like the other ones. <laughs> Sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I, I think that needs to be broadcast a little bit more so there's not so much fear of grabbing the scope and going. Oh, I don't know if I'll know what's wrong or I'll see anything. And then, I mean, I'm sure the first time you grab it, it'll be something small, but for the most part, man, it's, it jumps out at you. It's, it's way not like the other ones, or you may not recognize it right away, but when somebody presents you with a known good, then it then, jumps out at you. Then you're like, Oh wow. Okay. I'm obviously not the first person to say this uh you hear jim morton say this a lot but yeah you gotta know what normal looks like you gotta hook that scope up all the time so that yeah when there's a problem it's it's there it's obvious you see it for sure it's probably one of the great tragedies of uh, our industry slash our trade moving kind of away from the trade part the um craftsmanship side of auto repair into the production, more about production, more about getting them in, getting them out, turning and burning, whatever, however you want to describe that, that you are not compensated at all uh, in gathering known good. This is something you're probably going to have to invest your own time, whether it's during work hours, you know, you're on flat rate or some kind of a commission and you're going to take a bit of a hit because you're going to grab a couple known good waveforms off this car and uh, not saying you're spending half a day on it, but just, you know, I want to grab this. I want to grab that. Just even if it's easy, you're not getting compensated for that. And uh, it's kind of too bad. 
that there isn't a way to find a, a little bit happier medium. You know, a shop can't just have techs gathering data all the time for the next car, but can right. we find a little bit of a happy medium where there's a little bit of a buffer there where the shop's making money, you're making money, and you can also have a little bit of time to gather a database, build your own database of known good, whether it's, you know, it probably should be saved to benefit the shop, but if anything, that you can see it and have it in your mental database. Yeah, it's kind of like proving the worth of having that database. I guess that would be the start, but you're 100% right, because I worked at Firestone for about seven years, and it was flat rate, and yeah, I pulled out the scope when I was in trouble, when I couldn't figure it out with anything else, but I wanted my I wanted my next point six. I didn't want to hook up the scope for a known good, yeah. um, and that's that's the culture there. Uh, that's how you make your paycheck. So uh, yeah. I, yeah. I totally agree there that it it's not catered to to do that to get to build your database. I mean, it, we're, we're paying for it now. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh, heavy heavy reliance on. Uh, database diagnostics uh, or, um, you know, entities, which luckily there are entities even on social media that are of no cost, that it would be, if you can contribute to keep perpetuating it. And and, and not just that, not just social media, but uh, uh, equipment manufacturers kind of have their own databases building of known good waveforms. If we're speaking almost primarily of waveforms here, that there's a known good one out there that uh, you have access to it. But still, if everybody was kind of playing by the rules of um, uh, a little bit of courtesy, they would upload some known goods as well. And that yeah. takes time. Yeah, I've actually seen, I think it was Nissan uh, just recently had some cam and crank waveforms in there and Toyota in their in their service information. I was, yep. I was pretty impressed by seeing that. I was like, that's really cool. I, as they're adding more and more scope uh, to their repertoires, I guess, yeah, as the dealerships are getting scopes in as uh, essential tools or recommended tools, however that may be, the more and more are providing a database of known goods on you know, certain waveforms. Cam and crank probably dominates, right? Because you can scope the cam- crankshaft and you can scope the camshaft sensors, crankshaft sensor, camshaft camshaft sensors and know that the sensor itself is probably good and that the uh, reluctor is probably good but now when you're in a time alignment situation there's no way to know what's good unless you have a copy of a known good one there's no way to know you know unless and very very few uh, instances does the manufacturer have it in service information but a lot of them are I don't want to say a lot of them, but some of them are now building up their own databases with uh, scope captures because uh, how else are their techs going to know? You know? Right. Here's the tool. Good luck. Right. <laughs> have fun. Some of them have had that happen too. Um, okay. That's unfortunate. Well, hey, uh, do you uh, do you got anything else you'd like to add before we uh, close this out? Um, we we're talking about kind of new stuff in the shop maybe new directions and uh yeah i i mentioned it earlier trying to expand the market i, I don't know that that's uh, followed by a lot i think we're kind of trained 
to try to corner markets, dominate markets, be the best at uh, something everyone else is doing. And that, I mean, I definitely want to be the best or toward one of the best, uh, but I also want to expand uh, our the services we provide, and that's causing us to go in a few different directions. And one of them, you know, programming keys is something we do fairly often. Uh, people okay. buy keys, whether they get them from the dealer or uh, off off uh, the internet, wherever, maybe eBay or Amazon or whatnot. And they're coming in, they want the keys programmed. And, you know, factory tools usually let us do that um, or investing in uh, other tools to do that. But I've, uh, you know, we're looking at getting into key cutting now because... Uh, at least in our area, locksmiths do not – I don't think they really want to get into automotive much because I think it's painful for them to deal with probably multiple tools, tokens, uh, stuff like that. And then the keys are cut differently, so they may not have the tooling to cut all the different uh, types of car keys. And then finding vendors to get the keys that work. I forgot this. I was going to mention that locksmiths, uh, at least locally, they do not cut per key code. Uh, so if you, at least around us, we have support for uh, the domestic, GM Ford Chrysler. They can cut a key per VIN, if you will. Uh, but anything outside of those three and you're in, you're looking for a, a, a trip, you know. Sure. So uh, that's, to me, that's a market I'm trying to get into you know ados is another yeah. one yeah you know that that's a market i think there's a need uh not only a need to do the calibrations but a need to alert everybody that calibrations need to be done <laughs> right I, I think that's a big problem that they just don't know stuff like that trying to think outside the box what's another way to get a customer through the door and maybe it's for something that's wouldn't have initially thought for uh, for a car and you know i don't expect us to have key cutting every day but it's just one more service to provide not just for uh, the vehicle owner themselves but also the local repair shops i want to support them you know yeah we're in competition but i think it's friendly competition at least on my end and i would rather see everybody succeed than um you know, I, I think it's called in game theory zero sum, where there can, you know, kind of a Highlander, there can be only one. <laughs> I don't think it's got to be like that. Well, I really liked, uh, I listened to several of the podcast episodes you were on, on uh, Remarkable Results. I, I really liked the uh, Ric Flair analogy <laughs> of, uh, you know, build, building everybody up, um, you're building your competition up. That's, uh, like I mentioned before, it's, I don't think that's the most common mindset in our business, uh, unfortunately, but it's uh, it's, it's respectable. I, I think that's really great. Yeah, the knee jerk is always to run others, run the competition down. Oh, we're better than them. Yeah. I don't think you have to say anything. I think you can build them up and then you just do something that they couldn't uh, or didn't. I mean, I mean we, we still have to factor in. People make honest mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just does, it doesn't mean they suck. 
we've all had that car that we should have known better and we may not even know it right the the, the customer brought it to us where whatever the repair was going to be whatever the service was going to be and we messed it up and we don't even know it because the customer just went somewhere else and yep. did that shop run you down or did they say you know what i think you should take it back because i think they're good people over there i know them you know why wouldn't you build them up a little bit because if you get the chance to service the vehicle and quote-unquote right the wrong you now look that much better because you built up the other shop instead of well why would you run them down into the ground now you're just a little bit above ground that's that's, (laughs) yep exactly well hey this was awesome thank you so much for spending some time to uh talk to me about this stuff this is great you know, I could talk about anything for about as long as you want, but I really, I really appreciate you having me on and flattered that you uh, wanted me on here. Okay. Once again, I want to say thank you to Matt for coming on the show. I really enjoyed that. Hopefully you did too. And I wanted to thank you for listening. If you'd like to find more of this podcast, you can check out our website, which is auto diagpodcast.com has all the episodes there obviously you can find it in any podcast app that you use on your mobile device or computer you can also find us in a facebook group that i just started which is titled automotive diagnostic podcast just search for that on facebook and join that group i'm going to have some more activity going on in that group where we can post pictures because of course audio only gets us so far so there'll be a little bit of extra content there that we can utilize as well one last thing if you would like to be a guest on this show please send me a message in one way or another Uh, facebook might be the easiest place to do that but if you've got something you'd like to discuss or a case study that you want to talk about, I would love to hear from you. Uh, I've said it before, you know, I only have so much stuff to talk about, so I am uh, always excited to hear from somebody else in this field that is passionate about it, that loves this diagnostic side of the automotive world. But with that, we're going to close this out. Thanks again for listening. Hopefully you'll tune in again soon.